Hello and welcome back to the Ethics of Literature. Today we are talking about C.S. Lewis's Experiment in Criticism, rounding off our sort of tripartite examination of the three components of the work of literature, specifically the work itself, as we discussed with Gasset, and sort of divorcing it from the world around it in his discussion of the dehumanization of literature, the artist, as we discussed in Jacques Maritain's The Responsibility of the Artist, examining their moral obligations both to the work and to themselves as well as to their community. Now we turn our attention to the reader, the audience. Lewis's project here is nominally to reevaluate criticism by looking at the audience, by examining us and our reactions to what we read, rather than trying to find some sort of intrinsic value in the work of literature itself, and very much sort of steering us away from this evaluation of, of a work of literature according to the sort of prestige of its artist. And on the one hand, I have a lot of thoughts here, and I have a lot to say here, and on the other hand, I find that I am really tempted to just wander off book on this one. Um, there's a lot to say about our responsibility as audiences, as readers in this particular case. And it's another one of those complicated, convoluted issues that I imagine will very much wander into, like, total incomprehensibility if I let it do that. Um, but on the other hand, I am kind of eager to talk about my own personal experience here. Um, on some level, I have tried to inform my discussion of all three components of the literary business with my own experience. Um, when I talk about the business of being an artist, I talk about it from personal experience as, you know, a prospective writer, as someone trying to, you know, write novels and stories and such. Um, and likewise, when we were talking about the, the work itself, I was kind of very tempted and frustrated by the way that a work could wander out from under its author's control and get used and abused by various potential bad actors for whatever different reasons. Um, but here I have probably more claim than either of those other two discussions because I do a lot of reading. Like, it's my job, but also just because I do. Because ever since I was a kid, this was something that I was extremely drawn to. Um, and I, I don't even necessarily know how to explain that beyond that, because on some level I am very well aware of the fact that that is a very uncommon thing. Like, even in the 90s, it was an incredibly uncommon thing to have someone who was just that deeply interested in books for pretty much their own sake as early as I kind of got into it. Like, don't get me wrong, there are a lot of people out there who do in fact like to read, but for me, this is powerful, deep, meaningful, constitutive of who I am. Like, it is foundational, rudimentary. Um, and I've talked a lot over the, you know, years that this podcast has been running at this point about how deeply these things have meant to me. How my connection to Ray Bradbury is at the foundation of who I am. Or how, you know, for that matter, like... Some of the books that I read when, when I was a little kid, whether it was, you know, Star Wars or Lord of the Rings, has had deep, meaningful impact on me for years to come. Um, and oftentimes these stories are accompanied by, like, personal explanations, like, oh, my family wasn't around when I was at home and therefore I turned to books. Um, or, you know, we didn't have a television in my house, so we did a lot of reading. Um, that was not the case in my household. Like... 
I had no reason to turn to books away from some reality that I was engaged in. It's just something that always interested me. It was something that I found meaningful. I found truth in books in a way that I couldn't find it in virtually any other medium. Um, the day would come that I would learn to appreciate movies and video games and sort of see that same kind of truth in those places. But it never stopped being the case for me that books were the primary place where you would find that. And on some level, I kind of wonder if I'm not engaged in this sort of frenetic and mad search to just find more of that truth, if only because I still do. Um, like, it's one thing when you read a book for the first time as a little kid and it really, like, resonates with you and it's something that moves and... and seems momentous and important to you it's another thing when you pick up a book that you've never heard of before and find that same feeling years later um like i still am moved by other media but i'm probably moved more consistently by my reading habits than anything else i am still discovering new authors that i find exciting and you know interesting if only because there are so many dang books out there many hundreds of years of producing these works important for any number of reasons and in that i suspect i am definitely in line with what lewis is trying to write about here in the experiment and criticism um, again, Lewis's project here is to turn away from the supposed literary merits or demerits of a given work or a given author, as handed down by the canon or whoever, and instead arguing that we should be able to judge a book and the worth of a book instead on the basis of how it is read, how people read the thing, and what kind of people are reading it, why are they reading it, looking at the process of reading itself rather than the sort of static object that is being read or the person who devised it in the first place. Reading gets the priority here, which is why I find it so personal to talk about. Um, now, that said, the first distinction that Lewis makes right out of the gate and the one that he's going to follow for the duration of this book, I already find problematic. Um, for Lewis, he essentially divides the world into the literary and the unliterary. This is the basic distinction that he wants to talk about. This is the basic sort of recognition or di dichotomy that he is exploring. Um, this is how he recognizes what could be a good book from what could not be a good book. Um, there are people who read in a certain way, and there are people who read in a radically different way. Um... For Lewis, the unliterary are, as he describes it at various points, they are concerned with the event rather than the actual structure or the, the poetry of a given work. Um, they are therefore only there for it one time. They are going to like read any book just once, get what they want out of it, and then never touch it again. Um, they are disinterested in the mechanisms by which these works of literature are composed. Um, they are disinterested in the themes that are communicated by these works. Um, they are interested only in the excitement, or as Lewis calls it elsewhere, the castle building, the sort of uh, indulgent fantasy that these works of literature provide before they you know, go off and throw the book away because it can no longer provide that for them anymore. By contrast, we have the literary, who do 
all of the things that we associate with, you know, Lewis and his sort of scholarship. These are the people who read fastidiously the same work over and over and over again, sort of celebrating its merits and re-examining its themes. Um, these are the people who appreciate all the mechanisms involved in producing a work of literature, both thematic and as well as just the actual prose or poetry that's, that's involved here. Um, Lewis is evocative. Like, I can see this distinction. It is easy to look around and see this distinction in everyday life. Um, the trouble is, I think it's really simplistic. Like, don't get me wrong, I recognize the dichotomy and I see it. Um, I am a college professor, trust me, I know the difference between students who, you know, are in fact seriously engaged in reading and know how to read in this particularly literary way versus the students who don't, who just do not have the equipment for it either because they haven't been trained to do it or because they haven't seen the worth in it or whatever. Um, the trouble is, I don't think it's anywhere near that simple. Um, like, not even close. Um, as you probably know, if you've been following my podcast for any length of time, this is not the first time I've actually discussed an experiment in criticism. Um, in fact, every year that I teach the mythology class, I teach Lewis's chapter on myth from an experiment in criticism, um, largely because I find that it is probably the best definition of myth that is, you know, easily encapsulatable and teachable to a bunch of students, like the first day of class. Um, but also... I find myself kind of discussing this dichotomy of the literary and the unliterary in that class whenever I talk about it this way. Um, usually when I conduct my class on, you know, Lewis's experiment in criticism, or at least the chapter on myth, I find myself asking my students, not have you read a book multiple times, but are, is there a movie that you have seen multiple times? Um, the reason why I shift that question is because, you know, it's been 50 years since Lewis and almost certainly TV and movies have displaced the book as the primary sort of interaction with art that we have in this day and age. Um, Lewis was old-fashioned in his own time, arguably, or he probably would have recognized the same. What's more, I suspect I respect film criticism way more than Lewis did in his time. Um, and I see that as being at least somewhat parallel. You could judge that we are talking about apples and oranges here, but I think the same truth holds. I think the scholar of film can be as literary as the literary critic that Lewis is talking about in an experiment in criticism. I think that's, again, fairly translatable. So I ask the question, have you ever watched the same movie more than once? And I oppose it as Lewis would. Like, I ask, okay, why would you? Because you already know what's going to happen, so what do you get out of it when you do that? But what I want to emphasize is that when I ask that question, have you seen the same movie more than once? Every hand goes up. All of them. Like, without fail. And I'll usually follow up the question by asking, okay, which movie? And that's usually a really good move on my part because it gets the students excited just to talk about something that they already love. And I get the weirdest answers um, when I ask that question. You know, what movie do you really like? What movie has moved you? What movie do you revisit over and over and over again? Um, I've had a student say John Carpenter's The Thing. I've had a student say... Um, like, especially good chick flicks, like 10 Things I Hate About You. I've 
consistently, every year that I ask this question, somebody inevitably tells me white chicks. And I have still not seen that movie. One of these days I apparently have to. It looks terrible just from the way that it's advertised. But, you know, I'm going to be a good Louisian critic and suspend my my judgment until I've actually seen the dang thing. Heck, this year for the first time I had somebody tell me three billboards in Ebbing, Missouri, which I was just blown away by like dang they apparently martin mcdunning's crazy oscar-winning movie from a few years ago has in fact made some traction um this is normal and i mean it's more than normal like on some level yes it's probably the case that all of us have watched a movie more than once if only because like we're you know at least in the 90s you would be flipping through channels see it there and be like yeah i could watch that again These days, I suspect it has more to do with, you know, you're on a streaming service, you see something that's familiar, and you're like, yeah, I'll watch that again. But it's more than that, right? Like, when I was in college, the girls that I, you know, would visit from time to time, they all brought their libraries of Disney video cassettes to college and would watch them over and over and over again. And frequently it's the Disney movies that get this treatment. The Little Mermaid, or Aladdin, or, you know, Mulan, or more recently you've got Frozen and Moana. Like, this is normal behavior. Everybody does this. But if you get even more rudimentary about it, especially with those Disney movies, you realize this is what two-year-olds do. Like, I can't go on Facebook without, you know, some mother complaining about the fact that their three-year-old is watching Frozen for, like, the fourth time today. This is basic humanity stuff. And while Lewis is sort of emphasizing that there is something more than just, you know, are you appreciating the same thing multiple times, at the end of the day, what I want to stress is that, no, everybody does this. Everybody recognizes that there is a value to re-watching the same movie or rereading the same book or replaying the same video game because a good video game will yield new details, things that you missed the first time around, or perhaps you can get an ending that you didn't get the, the first time that you played it. Reading a good book multiple times gives you the opportunity to appreciate where it's going, see elements of foreshadowing. This is not just a purely literary endeavor. This is something that has infiltrated every level of our society at this point. Everybody does this. Everybody has watched The Avengers two or three times, perhaps because it is mimetic, perhaps because it is exciting, perhaps because it is fulfilling. Who knows? But that's basic. That's assumed. And this is not to say that as a consequence everybody is literary and that like the last 50 years we've just radically raised the bar on you know what constitutes literary engagement and now everybody does this as a matter of course. I don't tend to think that that is the case. On the one hand I admit that I am polling college students when I ask this question except you know again for the example of like the three-year-old who watches Frozen over and over and over again. But at the same time I do have those conversations where I'm like okay so do you read in your spare time and the answer is just flat out no or you know i ask for some sort of pop culture reference what are we watching what are we reading and there's very little in the way of response when asked what do you do in your spare time i'll get answers like i go to a bar with my friends or i go and lift weights with my friends there are plenty of people out there for whom a constant media diet is not a given On the one hand, I am very used to, like, watching the videos of YouTube 
YouTubers or media critics, people who are so so entrenched in this world that it seems unusual that anyone could not possibly be in that world. On the other hand, I recognize that there are a lot of people who just are flat out unplugged. But just because they're unplugged doesn't mean that they don't have that favorite movie that they've watched four or five times, that they don't have some favorite book that they've, you know, torn the heck out of. This is just human, and these lines are not clear by any extent of the imagination. I mean, by Lewis's definition, his understanding of the literary versus the unliterary, I would tend to exclude, say, my father from that consideration. Like, I love my dad, he's a great guy, and he has read books more than once, I'll be making that point in a moment, but he reads them for the historical matter, or he reads them to learn something, or he reads them to pass the time. Um, he is, by Lewis's definition, someone unliterary. But I swear, I've got my father's co old copy of Poe Must Die, this kind of trashy but kind of really interesting book from i want to say the 70s or 80s that's like historical fiction about this british dude who teams up with edgar Allan poe to solve a mystery like it's wild and it's a lot of fun and it's really interesting and my dad has read this book so many times that the copy that i have from him is literally in three pieces because he's worn out the binding so many times since he started he read it for the first time in the army and I've talked to my dad about it. Like, again, my dad and I don't have a lot in common of the way that we read books, but he can speak very intelligently about this book, very much articulate why he finds it exciting and interesting. He identifies with some of the characters. He finds that the way they interact with each other fascinating. He is, you know, compelled by this view of a dark, seedy 19th century underworld. On some level, yeah, that describes what Lewis is talking about when he says that it is castle building or that it is indulgent in some way. But on some level, I think it's more complicated than that. I think there are many different kinds of readers reading for many different kinds of reasons and that none of those reasons should on their face be disqualified. But again, that kind of probably speaks to my own assumptions about art, which I've already made fairly clear. Now they're about to get super clear, though, because that's what I want to talk about here. That's what I want to talk about when I talk about the audience's reaction to a work and the way that an audience relates to a work. This is complicated. And the things that used to be very strictly literary or unliterary have since stopped being so strictly discernible. Just as I said early on in this lecture series, the line between art and not art just does not exist for me. The same is true between the line or with the line between the literary and the unliterary. Maybe Lewis is pointing to something, and maybe I could draw a pretty clear-cut line, but I suspect if I did, it would be pretty dang artificial, and there would be a lot to miss on either end from the other side. In short, what I want to stress is there's a difference between good unliterary literature and bad unliterary literature, just as there is a good between or a difference between good literary literature and bad literary literature, which Lewis not only admits but is sort of out to discuss. There's more complexity here, in short. What I want to stress is that I know 
and talk to a lot of people about books. Like, that is probably more than anything just my thing. Like, if you are listening to this and you do not know me personally, then you only have my word to go on. But I know quite a few of my friends, quite a few of my, you know, of the people I knew that in, knew in college. Like, they all know, just from a cursory interaction with me, that talking about books is one of my deepest and most, like, profound loves. And it is talking about books. Like, reading a book in a vacuum for me is doing only part of the work. You then have to discuss it. You have to, like, bring it up in conversation. You have to ask questions about it. Ideally with someone who's also read the book, but not necessarily. Like, there have been many a time that I've explained the plot of a book I'm reading to my wife just so I can, like, talk about it and give her a frame of reference. And... This doesn't necessarily mean that she's going to read the book. It just means that I need to talk about it. Like, I need to get it out, to parse it, to, you know, have this conversation, even if it is by proxy in some sense. But when I was in college, when I actually had the luxury of, like, sitting and talking to people who were in the same classes as me, who were interested in literature, and therefore were, in fact, keeping up with my reading schedule, anytime that I had the opportunity to, like, form a book club so we could all just sit down and read Don Quixote or Anna Karenina, you better believe I did it. Like, I was in charge of the writers' union for a year, and I suspect I drove everybody freaking up the wall because I would just take any excuse to show up, read a passage of some random book, and then want to talk about it. Um, that absolutely drives me. That is, like, one of the most foundational means I have of interacting with another human being. Like, you invite me to a party where I don't know anybody, and I will just sit in the corner and not say anything, and everybody will think that I'm being miserable, but actually I'm secretly observing everyone, and it's a whole different ballgame. So I'm fine, thanks. Thanks for asking. But all you need to do at the same party is to ask me what I've been reading lately, and I won't shut up for two hours. Um, and if I find out that you've also read the same book, or if you have a book that you want to talk about, that's another four hours on top of it. Like, I am fascinated, not just by the business of writing, the business of, you know, incorporating themes into what you're writing, but also the way that people interact with and respond to writing. Like, I pride myself and take it very personally when I can successfully or unsuccessfully recommend a book to a person. That, to me, is, like, the closest level of intimacy that I am capable of achieving with another human being. And this sounds like an exaggeration. It is not. Um, like, I know that I know someone when I get them a book and they are fascinated by it. When I can have that conversation with them, you know, outside of class or, like, normal responsible channels. It's kind of why I became a college professor and why this job is probably one of the few that I can actually do without, you know, going insane. Because at the end of the day, it's doing something that I'm already inclined to do. But with that in mind, A, I have to kind of wonder, shouldn't Lewis also have done this? <laughs> like, you know, C.S. Lewis, college professor person who hangs out with the Inklings, like the literal group of people who all just got together so they can discuss their writing and medieval literature and the whole thing. Like, can't he recognize that the, these sorts of distinctions that I see are, are out there? But on the other hand, I think he does, and he's just trying to oversimplify, which I get and I appreciate, but nonetheless frustrates me. Because 
every time that I strike up a conversation with somebody about a book, I'm inevitably going to run into disagreement. And that's when the conversation gets good. Because smart people like good books for different reasons. And smart people disagree over what is a good book for various reasons. I can have a conversation with someone and say, you know, why do you like this book, this movie, this video game, and get a completely unexpected answer in many cases. Um, sometimes those answers are predictably shallow. Like, when I, at the end of almost every class, I have an extra credit assignment where I invite my students to talk about something that they've read that connects to what happens in the class. So in Philosophy of Love and Friendship, I'm like, go find a, a movie or a video game or something that talks about love and tell me what kind of love it's portraying. And I get all sorts of crazy stuff. And I do the same thing in my mythology class. Give me an example of a story told recently that, you know, gives you an example of a myth. And I get all sorts of different responses. But, and most of them, I should emphasize, are pretty garbage. They're just there for the 15 points, thank you very much. They're not passionately invested in Wolfgang Peterson's Troy, or for that matter in Percy Jackson's, you know, the Olympian series, or whatever. They're just there to, you know, fulfill the responsibility, and as much as you might see that, like, they were very excited about it at one point in their past, they can't articulate what it is that they like about it, and therefore the conversation can only go so far. But at the same time, I find that my most sort of productive conversations are with people who like the same stuff that I like, but like it for radically different reasons. So, for example, take Tolkien's The Lord of the Rings. This is a book that I've talked about with a lot of people. It's a book that I've talked about on this channel a lot. And it's a book that can be admired for a wide variety of different reasons. And as much as I try to be sympathetic to all of them, I have to recognize my reading and what I find interesting about Tolkien is going to be different from what a lot of other people find interesting about Tolkien. Um, I've said before, like, I'm pretty sure this actually came up in, in my Tolkien writing, you know, in the past, probably on Watch somewhere, um, that I am not a huge fan of lore. Like, I know there are a ton of people out there who love lore. Um, who are scholars of Superman or Spider-Man or Batman, who absolutely dig into Lord of the Rings specifically because they are trying to tease out all of the details, try and, you know, get the complete picture of Tolkien's Middle-earth start to finish, and who will absolutely just revel in the knowledge that that brings, this sort of secret wisdom. And that's something that I don't necessarily get into. Like, I like having that background, I like having that knowledge, but only insofar as it informs my appreciation of Tolkien's themes and his ethics. Whereas the lore is frequently cited and discussed for its own sake. Here in 2023, this is kind of actually a big deal, because the internet is very much revolving around discussion of discussions of big lore-driven stories, like you know, Amazon has their Lord of the Rings series based roughly on the Silmarillion, don't get me started or all of the sort of comic book fans who reveal all the secrets and Easter eggs in the various MCU or DCEU movies we have a profound respect for lore, and there are a ton of lore lovers out there um but that's not me. Like, I have, again, productive conversations with these people. I'm fascinated by the things that they come up with, but lore for its own sake doesn't really interest me. Tell me what the lore is for, and you'll have more traction. 
by that logic, I can say that I am not a lore person. And I would be very hesitant to disqualify any of those people as being literary in the sense that Lewis is literary, just because they like the thing and dig deep into the thing and try to learn all they can about the thing for different reasons than I am liking the thing and digging into the thing and trying to learn all that I possibly can about the thing. Maybe that is because lore wasn't a thing in Lewis's day. You know, it took the writing of Tolkien to sort of make that a, something that people in the whole literary, like, academic world started to recognize and appreciate. I mean, Lewis himself makes some pretty disparaging comments about comic books over the course of the experiment and criticism, largely because he thinks that they are only serving as a sort of indulgent, childish, castle-building fantasy. But clearly that's not the case when people are carrying these lessons long into their adulthood, absolutely celebrating these stories, their themes, the you know art that is on the actual page, as well as the styling, the writing, and the thematic material that they're conveying, well into their adulthood to the point that this has become a cottage industry in its own right. Lore is definitely not unliterary. Studying lore could definitely be compared to the person who, as uh, Lewis calls them, dry as dust, um, who learns everything that they possibly can about a particular writer's world or a particular moment in history to provide us with proper context for reading those works of literature or understanding that frame of mind. Lore is an important part of the academic world, if we understand a little bit more broadly. Practicing lore-mongering with the likes of Tolkien or with the likes of Spider-Man hardly seems like unliterary work by that reckoning. And indeed, these are people who are going to be obsessively returning to the same works over and over and over again in order to tease out all that lore, in order to appreciate it, and even to draw out plot holes and get extremely upset about them. As much as we may criticize that, as much as many people on the internet push back against the sort of plot hole lore-monger view of literature and art, I'd be very remiss to say that it is inappropriate, to say that their way of loving this stuff is wrong in some sense. So what else is there then? Like, if Lewis in fact is describing the literary and the unliterary, but amongst the literary we have these subcategories, the loremonger or the person obsessed with story structure, you know, the sort of Campbellian scholar who's interested in boiling stories down to their constituent components and then rebuilding something on that the way that uh, Star Wars did, or alternatively, like the actual legit honest-to-God poets, the people who are interested in the actual sound of words and the way that they are composed of who appreciate meter and rhythm, which again is something that I definitely don't do. Like, I love well-written prose and can praise it, you know, until I'm blue in the face, but it doesn't change the fact that that's kind of secondary to me after all this other stuff. You know, we've got your straight-up emotional critics who, you know, feel very passionately moved by certain stories and will revisit them over and over again to get that same feeling, as well as what I would suspect i Describe, should describe myself as the kind of theme or philosophers who are interested in abstracting the ideas, the, the messages and values from a story in order to like talk about the essence of what the author is getting at. These are all literary behaviors, but they're all different literary behaviors. They all belong to different people, and different people are expert in them. 
this is what Lewis kind of fails to acknowledge, I think, and it weakens his experiment and criticism as a consequence. I think he gets at a lot of them. I think he's aware of these people in the margins. Again, when he actually starts discussing the different kinds of critics, you'll notice that a lot of the things that I mentioned do in fact come up. Dryas dust suddenly becomes super valuable in his love of lore and history and minutia. Um, the writer who is interested in story structure suddenly becomes relevant when you start talking, like deconstructing and dissecting great works of literature or great works of film, etc. There's a role for each of these people to play, in short. And Lewis seems, if I were to venture a guess, to kind of hang out on the poet and theme philosopher approach to storytelling, which is part of the reason why I appreciate him. But it's clear that he is grumpy about writers who do not write mellifluously. He is, therefore, more on that poetic side than I would be, necessarily. Like, while I was actually reading an experiment in criticism this time around, uh, I, I read the passage where he was talking about how, you know, one of the characteristics of the unliterary reading um, is that they are deaf to certain kind of, like, badly assonant phrases. Um, so in chapter four, the uh, reading of the unliterary, he has like a list of different characteristics that sort of describe and define this unliterary reading. Um, so number two, which I'm trying to emphasize here, is they have no ears. They read exclusively by eye. The more horrible cacophonies and the most perfect specimens of rhythm and vocalic melody are to them exactly equal. It is by this that we discover some highly educated people to be unliterary. They will write the relation between mechanization and nationalization without turning a hair. Now, on the one hand, I can't help but observe in this case that the relation between mechanization is nation and nationalization is what I would like to call bad assonance. Ha <laughs> ha! Yeah, I coined that myself and I'm extremely proud of it and my wife still refuses to acknowledge that particular coining. Um, but I also definitely fall into this category sometimes. While reading an experiment in criticism, I was having a particularly, you know, spirited conversation with another friend of mine who does, like I say, read things in a very different way than I do, um, about Agatha Christie's The Murder on the Orient Express. You know, the classic mystery novel that is sort of regarded as, like, the pinnacle of the form, at least of the Agatha Christie novel. And I responded that I actually was really frustrated by that book, that, you know, minor spoilers ahead, but when Poirot declares that, you know, all of them are guilty of the murder, but he's going to let them off because the guy they murdered was a terrible person, that I found it morally offensive. And we went back and forth on this for quite a while, but in the process of the discussion, I realized I kind of had a hankering to read some Agatha Christie, and as much as I have read The Murder on the Orient Express and not been moved by it, and honestly haven't read a whole lot of Agatha Christie's other work, one book that I have always liked ever since I was a little kid was the book that is now titled And Then There Were None. Uh, Agatha Christie's novel about, like, a whole bunch of people getting stuck in a house together and getting systematically murdered by mysterious means one by one. Like, I love this book, so I went back to read it, and, oh my gosh, is it badly written. Like, I'm sorry if there are any major Agatha Christie fans listening to this, but, oh my gosh, like, that very passage where Lewis is talking about the you know, having no ears, the most horrible cacophonies are equal to the perfect rhythms. Like, 
there were several sentences and and then and and then there were none that I just couldn't believe once I was paying attention to it that I was just sort of passing over without any acknowledgement. Agatha Christie has a tin ear when it comes to the sort of meter and rhythm of her prose. And I've read this book probably a half dozen times at this point and never noticed. Like, maybe a little bit I noticed. I do get frustrated by the fact that she introduces all the speaking with a colon, but I also understand that because there's like ten different characters and she's got to keep them all straight. It's tough. But at any rate, what I want to stress is, if that's true, then I am an unliterary reader. Or at least I have one of the major symptoms of being an unliterary reader. And while, you know, you could definitely accuse me of being an unliterary reader, like, you're welcome to come out and say, Professor Kozlowski is a hack, and he doesn't appreciate great literature, and probably be fairly well-founded to do so, especially because the approach that I have towards art and literature includes a lot of stuff that most people would consider inartistic or inauthentic or non-literary in general. Again, I've been reading books since I was a little kid and I reread this stuff all the time, so if we were using Lewis's other criteria, it would be really hard to, you know, justify it. Like, Lewis has five different criteria here for what makes the unliterary. Criteria one, they never uncompelled read anything that is not narrative. I definitely do not fulfill that. I am almost always reading narrative. In fact, it's much more work twisting my arm to try to get me to read something factual. You better believe that I am just constantly reading at least two or three different books of pure fiction. Like, at time of speaking, I am indeed still reading Agatha Christie's and then there were none, despite my original horror at discovering her tin ear, as well as Gabriel Garcia Marquez's Love of the Time of Cholera, because I haven't read that one yet, which, by the way, is gorgeous prose, even in English. I don't know if it's the translator or the Spanish or both, but yeah, it is the absolute opposite there, even though it is a pain in the butt to read because, oh my gosh, the chapters are 60 pages long and there are no breaks um, I'm also reading at the exact same time Ted Chiang's uh, Stories of Your Life and Others collection, which is the science fiction collection that includes the story that Arrival is based on, and it's gorgeous, though for completely different reasons than either Marquez or Agatha Christie, and in order to go to bed, I occasionally read, and I'm probably a little embarrassed to admit it, Michael Stackpole's X-Wing series, which I am rediscovering for the first time since I was in, like, high school. I am currently right about to finish up book three, The Kratos Trap, and I swear this stuff actually holds up better than Agatha Christie, so, you know, take that as you will. I admitted to my wife last night, like, I don't think I like Agatha Christie, and I think that's just what it comes down to, and I feel like a bad person about this. So, again, I'm sorry if you are an Agatha Christie fan out there, but I suspect... I suspect that she is unliterary, at least by Lewis's standards, for sure. So I definitely don't fit criteria one, not only as regards the ear, but also in every other way. They're either quite unconscious of style or even prefer books which we should think badly written. That definitely doesn't fit. The exact example that he gives is that Treasure Island is lousy, and I love Treasure Island and definitely find its like prose precious. Um, I would definitely have an appreciation for style even if I do have a bit of a tin ear. Um, they enjoy narratives in which the verbal element is reduced to the minimum strip stories told in pictures or films with the least possible dialogue. Yeah, tell that to somebody who 
deeply loves Tolstoy or for that matter the overwritten business of something like Tristram Shandy they demand swift moving narratives something must always be happening their favorite terms of condemnation are slow low long winded and the like like I've, I've made my fair share of criticisms about slow stories but I don't think that I do it un, in a way that's unwarranted like I've definitely read the long descriptive passages of something like Thomas Hardy with a certain amount of joy so maybe I fail criteria two, but I definitely do not fail the other four. And that's my point. I think Lewis has kind of glommed together a whole bunch of different things that he finds problematic about certain books and certain readers that honestly tend to be shuffled around and distributed more evenly in my experience. I know people who definitely prefer the minimum amount of narrative who see a kind of strict adherence to pure narrative storytelling as a sign of efficiency um i would go back and forth with a uh, friend of mine or friend of a friend um who definitely prioritize this in their own writing and i and frequently ask me why do you incorporate these details to which i would respond it's about tone or it's about you know expressing like unsaid details it's about subtlety and they just did not register that um but did in fact read the same books over and over again and did absolutely have a great ear for prose and all of these other things these are different priorities these are different styles of reading they are not the common characteristics of just one and it's entirely probable that lewis is drawing broad strokes here um, yes, some members of the literary, whoever they may be, may be missing one or two of these particular criteria, but all of them recognize the value of all of these criteria, even if they're not especially good at it. Alternatively, the unliterary practice all of them, and pretty strongly and consistently. But again, that's not my experience. I've found lots of people who are just into a James Bond movie for the sake of the pure indulgence of it, who appreciate something like Skyfall more than they appreciate something like Quantum of Solace, because Skyfall had that awesome scene where, like, they're fighting against the cool backdrop of the, the neon sign or something. They appreciate the style. They recognize it as well. It may be superficial. It may be, you know, kind of, like, just as a novelty or as something to sort of like improve or impress their ability to just indulge in the fantasy of James Bond for a moment, but it still remains appropriate. If you have enough film language to appreciate when something tricky like that is being done and you see that as an augmentation rather than a detraction, you're already proving Lewis wrong. For Lewis, that's getting in the way of the narrative. Those moments or beats where we emphasize style over substance tend would detract from the pure adrenaline rush of an action movie but that's not the case and what's more i think our contemporary media landscape really gives the lie to that because it's not clear anymore where the boundaries between literary and unliterary tend to be our commercial popcorn purely indulgent art is in fact finely crafted and finely tuned in its own right. See, 
Lewis's fundamental argument here is that something like Treasure Island, in fact, detracts from the desire of the unliterary. They would rather read the all-swashbuckling, all-the-time, all-adventure-in-action pirate story rather than Stevenson's more carefully developed, slower, um, more nuanced, more character-driven depiction of the same. But none of those boys' books that he's describing tend to persist into the contemporary world. And maybe some of that is because, you know, now at this point, 50 years afterwards, that language is sort of relegated or seems a little antiquated and therefore people don't want to pick up those books again. But it doesn't change the fact that on the one hand, everybody is kind of on the same page when it comes to appreciating this book that's been around for a while and a contemporary adaptation of the same. Everybody likes the Muppet Treasure Island, even if it is sort of taking some and detracting in other ways from what Stevenson is doing, it has its own merits. It has its own appeal. There are a lot of movies and a lot of books that are just popular. And popular because they are good. Like, don't get me wrong, I am not one of those people who is insisting that popularity has to be a standard, has to be like a prerequisite for a thing to be good. I have a lot of movies and a lot of books that I am alone in appreciating and that I have spent a lot of time thinking about and think are masterpieces in their own right. Heck, you don't need to explore Video Game Academy, Academy's website for very long to realize that I have written, I don't even know how much, on a video game that I don't think anyone who speaks English has ever played, or at least I don't have any evidence that that is the case. Um, it is okay with me to be alone in my appreciation for a particular work of literature or a work of or a video game or a movie or what have you but at the same time i tend to think that the movies that tend to be the most popular are doing something right as well like i am a devotee of film critic hulk as i've probably mentioned many many times and film critic hulk definitely falls into the category of the sort of story structure aficionados side of the literary divide uh, like he can absolutely appreciate good you know cinematography and good stylization and all of the sort of poetic aspects or the aspects of a film that are equivalent to poetry um, but at the same time at the end of the day he is 100% all about story structure making sure that the beats are in order and his mantra is basically that a movie that gets those beats correctly will be more successful than one that does not. A movie that masters this craft will be better received, even by the cinematically illiterate, than would be a movie that doesn't get that right. And he's got plenty of examples to make his case. We all absolutely loved The Avengers, we all absolutely hated The Green Lantern. And he will argue, point by point, why the Avengers or Star Wars or Mad Max Fury Road or The Matrix is beat by beat following these rules and demonstrating clear craft where Green Lantern or John Carter of Mars or whatever totally misses the mark. Lewis is wrong, in short. At least when it comes to cinema studies. Maybe he is a little bit more right on the literature front, but I really don't think that's true either. I think overwhelmingly these days, insofar as there is a literary community, people who read books for fun, 
those people tend to appreciate well-told stories way more than they appreciate the trashy knockoffs. They know the difference. As much as I might absolutely make fun of something like E.L. James's Fifty Shades of Grey for only providing titillation, for only providing indulgence, at the end of the day, I tend to think that people are still reading Twilight where they're not reading Fifty Shades of Grey because Twilight is the better book. It has the more robust themes. Take, for example, Harry Potter. Like, we definitely dumped on J.K. Rowling all last week because of her politics and her personality and her character. But let's actually talk about the popularity of these books for a moment, because that's part of the problem in that discussion, is that they're good books. Like, there's a side of it that we should probably talk about, the whole, you know, parents trying to get the, their kids to just read anything, and therefore, because Harry Potter is the thing that they're reading, they're, everybody is on board with Harry Potter. That's definitely a phenomenon, and I definitely know that that's a phenomenon, and I don't want to discount that as sort of part of the impetus for getting all of these kids to read these books. But at the same time, they're well-written, at least at their best, like... The first three books are extremely well plotted. The characters that J.K. Rowling devises are almost always incredibly compelling, and she has a mastery of villains that is just bar none. Like, some of the villainous characters across the Harry Potter franchise, be it, you know, the sort of overarching villains like Snape, but even more the sort of one-off, they're only here for a book and they are obnoxious and more of a problem, or in a petty sort of gross way than in an actual threatening way. Characters like Dolores Umbridge from The Order of the Phoenix with her, you know, hyper-bureaucratic, but also, like, mincingly friendly um, uh, mannerisms, or Gilderoy Lockhart from Chamber of Secrets, where he's just this overbearing, obsessed-with-celebrity jerk who actually doesn't know how to do magic. These are incredibly compelling characters, and you've got to admire her ability to create them. That's hard work, and that's almost certainly why these books were as compelling and popular as they were. They were well constructed. Now, we may have problems with J.K. Rowling herself, and I am honestly feeling a little guilty about promoting her work in this way, but I can admire talent and people who are terrible. That was the entire last discussion that we just had. So the reason why Harry Potter is popular isn't because it's, you know, peddling some sort of like, purely indulgent fictional narrative, though that's definitely there, they're compelling because they are peddling an indulgent narrative in a way that is extremely well-told, grounded in personal experience, and speaking to our own experience as humans. She has a good eye, in short. And that's admirable. That's one of the things that makes up this literary quality that Lewis is pointing to here. So, Against Lewis, I would argue that popular things are popular not because they lack something, but because they have the same literary quality in a way that is especially digestible or especially flattering or that can be read in a wide variety of ways. On the one hand, yes, many of these works also speak to the castle building, are also indulgent. 
Harry Potter is a perfect example there. Star Wars is a perfect example there. Um, James Bond is like the quintessential example of male indulgent power fantasy nonsense going amok. All of these can be power fantasies, but when well-written, are more effective as power fantasies, unlike what Lewis is talking about here. So, does that make them better, or does that make them worse, is the question I'm more interested in. When Lewis and Tolkien had their debate about myth, the, the, in that lecture that I often have about mythopoeia, also one of my like early mythology lectures, I mentioned that Lewis says, or Lewis is accusing Tolkien or accusing mythology of being lies breathed through silver. And what I want to emphasize is that a lie breathed through silver is more dangerous than a lie not breathed through silver. A lie that is just openly, honestly, or sort of totally unskillfully a lie. A lie breathed through silver is more convincing because we want to believe it more. It is like putting sugar in your medicine. It makes it go down easier. There is something duplicit about, duplicitous about that, and making an effective power fantasy can be even more destructive than an ineffective power fantasy because an ineffective power fantasy has the decency of failing to be a power fantasy. That I find striking. And Lewis, you'll notice, has some major problems with power fantasy or indulgence or castle building as one of the consistent bugbears of what he calls the unliterary. I would stress, though, that that's not a literary or unliterary distinction. That's something else. There are plenty of power fantasies across so-called literary fiction. Most of the truly great writers manage to avoid them or question them or challenge them. It's pretty hard to find a straight-up power fantasy or indulgence fantasy in Shakespeare, for example. Shakespeare is always asking questions, always sort of undermining our initial enjoyment or our sort of unabashed pleasure in a thing. Like, think of Twelfth Night and Malvolio just kind of ruining the party and sort of putting a dampener on the whole experience. Shakespeare is a master at that at making us sort of question the actual power, the actual fantasy, the actual indulgence, or the actual just party atmosphere that he otherwise seems to be suggesting. But that doesn't mean that he's alone in that. If there are tons of people out there reading Milton's Devil in The Paradise Lost as being actually a positive character, there's clearly people out there who are reading literature with a power fantasy in mind. And as much as we might point to Lewis and Tolkien as being these purveyors of fantasies that are more measured, a lot of the material that they are drawing from are themselves frequently being used as power fantasies. Whether it is the Iliad and people celebrating and getting excited about Achilles and his sort of mastery of, you know, martial prowess, or whether it is the knights of the round table being turned into the kind of romances that Cervantes is mocking in Don Quixote, clearly literature has plenty of examples of power fantasies in them, even if they aren't as pure as what we often see today. The Iliad, you'll notice, if it is in fact supposed to be a power fantasy about Achilles, is kind of bad at it because Achilles sucks throughout most of the book and the moral of the entire story is that everybody is sad because everybody dies. Still, 
it didn't stop the Athenians from treating it as a power fantasy and talking about it in the Athenian festival as though this was a model for how men were supposed to live and act. That's what I want to get at. That's the problem here. That is where the responsibility shifts from the author to the audience. And on the one hand, I should stress, Lewis is cognizant of this. Lewis seems smarter than, or is smarter than he necessarily seems with his sort of sweeping generalizations and kind of binary dichotomies. When we, in fact, get to the experiment in chapter 11, you'll notice that he drops a lot of the original sort of, like, sheep and goats language and instead shifts to talking a lot about the virtue of any given work and sort of taking a shot at criticism altogether which is something that I definitely want to talk about in its own time. But for now, I want to focus on this question. Can we read wrong? And what do we as readers do about the fact that this is in fact a thing that happens? To go back to Milton for a minute, I've noticed, again, because I am fascinated by all of this sort of literature and reading and all of these things, I've noticed a tendency or a trend among certain writers at certain times in history, and honestly one day I totally want to do a lecture series about it, um, where writers sort of hold up a, as their protagonist a character who is famously evil as a sort of counterexample for how people are supposed to behave. So Milton in Paradise Lost, I interpret his entire description of Satan in the first two books of Paradise Lost as in fact being a condemnation of Homeric epic rather than a sort of recasting of Satan in the Homeric epic role. Again, you may be able to track this down on uh, my podcast because I talk about this when I do my discussion of Milton in general humanities. But that's just the tip of the iceberg. Follow that sort of weird literary trope, this, you know, obvious villain promoted to protagonist role, and you will find Mikhail Lermontov's A Hero of Our Time, um, Pechorin, who is this sort of classically disreputable military man and is very much supposed to be a parody or satire of the sort of, like, honorable military guy in something like Pushkin who fights duels and seduces women and is supposedly heroic for it. Um, Lermontov is putting Pechorin in those same situations and emphasizing how ridiculous he is. And yet, like our interpretation of Milton's Satan, Pechorin is often held up as a literary hero in his own right, unironically full stop. Fast forward again and you get John Gardner's Grendel, where John Gardner clearly has selected the monster from Beowulf to sort of express the most insidious and evil uh, articulations of like contemporary existentialism and nihilism, and yet it is frequently taught in high schools or elsewhere as though Grendel's perspective is the one that Gardner shares even though Gardner clearly shows Grendel is wrong when he finally runs into Beowulf and Beowulf tears his friggin' arm off. This is something that happens a lot, I think. And there are a lot of examples of literature that sort of holds up this kind of literal anti-hero in order to make a moral point that lots of people tend to completely miss. Smart people, literary people, people who do this stuff for a living. 
convert this to the popular culture dis description, like take this in movies, and all of a sudden you have conversations about Fight Club and the people who unironically take Tyler Durden as the hero of that movie, where Fincher is clearly lambasting it. Honestly, Polonaic might be a little bit more ambiguous on that front, but still not terribly ambiguous. Or, for that matter, how many people sort of hold up Edward Norton as a hero from American History X, despite the fact that he's clearly a fascist just because he looks like a badass. There's a lot of misreading going on. There is a, are a lot of people who are holding up people who are supposed to be villains because they are cool, because they are awesome, because they too fill that power fantasy role. I mean, to be totally like blunt and straightforward about this, I recently, a couple of years ago, was looking at a picture of my nephews as they were going out for Halloween, and apparently all three of them had decided to dress up as Darth Vader for Halloween. All three of them. Three Darth Vaders wandering around asking for treats. And some part of me, my skin crawls when I hear about this. I get it. When I was in middle school, I definitely thought the Imperials were way cooler than the Rebels. And to this day, I still have the Lego Imperial Star Destroyer and the like Imperial Shuttle hanging around my office. But not so much with the X-Wings or Y-Wings or Mon Calamari Star Cruisers. Not that Lego makes those, mind, mind you. Um... I have changed my perspective and definitely recognized the heroes to be the good guys and the ones that I want to be like, but it doesn't change the fact that the power of an Imperial Star Destroyer is alluring, is menacing in a way that is attractive, tempting. And that's a really powerful thread in a lot of contemporary literature and in a lot of contemporary media. It's something that Lewis isn't talking about here. It's an idea that he really doesn't address, except insofar as he does have a chapter that's literally, like, entitled um, the, by, on misreading by the literary, which is not about that at all so much, um, but it is instead about, like, how tragedy is sort of celebrated for the wrong reasons or how, you know, mistakes in interpretation get kind of hailed and appreciated. Um... What I want to emphasize is that as much as misreading is indeed a problem by both the literary and the unliterary by, by Lewis's lights, even if we grant him the unliterary, it's not so easily fixed. And it is pervasive. There are layers to a lot of these stories. The castle building that Lewis is describing and seems to be suspicious of is something so present and so prevalent, especially in popular and commercial fiction, because it does sell and because it does appeal to us, that oftentimes its presence overpowers whatever moral or virtue or value the artist is otherwise trying to communicate. This is, to me, an absolutely fascinating dynamic. It is at the root of how we misinterpret Milton and Grendel, but it is also at the root of why Fight Club and American History X are held up as, you know, potential justifications for fascism. Or it, at, at the end of the day, can also be held up as a reason why we seem to be of two minds every time something remotely satirical comes out. Is it satire? Is it not satire? Is it, you know, is like Joaquin Phoenix and Joker actually satirical or is he in fact being a straight-faced sort of description of Todd Phillips's own philosophy on humor it's real tough to say 
And there's a certain amount of cowardice that comes along with this when you say, oh, it's just satire, or oh, it's just ironic, and don't follow it up with, I don't actually believe that we should go around killing people. Misreading is a problem. And deliberate misreading, or for that matter, a unintentional misreading because it already aligns to something that we believe even if the author disagrees with us, is kind of endemic to our discussion of literature and media today. Like, a lot. I am increasingly uncomfortable by Disney's portrayal of, you know, stormtroopers and evil Sith Lords as though it is just like a lifestyle choice and not some sort of fundamental you know, elemental battle of good and evil the way that Lucas seems to present it back in the 70s. I tend to be really uncomfortable when the claim, this is satire, you're not supposed to take it seriously, is used to defend something that seems to be pretty much on its face, relentlessly misogynistic or transphobic or incredibly racist. It's, at the very least, uncomfortable. And on the one hand, we're stuck here. Like, I don't think Lewis would disagree. We do have a complete lack of objective interpretation when we come to these works. We are forced to navigate between a wide variety of subjective interpretations. And where Lewis uses this as a justification, and I admire him for doing that, like, Lewis's ultimate conclusion here in the uh, experiment is that we need to stop condemning great works of English literature, and, you know, it, this is the force that generates more heat than light, as he puts it. Um, there seem to be plenty of quasi-academic critics who are making their careers by, like, dumping on someone like Milton or Marlowe or any number of supposedly revered English writers just for the purpose of making a fuss. And Lewis's ultimate conclusion here is we need fewer evaluative critics. We need to, like, maybe jettison the entire industry for a decade or two and see if we, you know, don't turn out to be better people as a consequence. Um, and I honestly find his argument there very compelling. But at the same time, as much as we probably could stand to, you know, be spared the people like, injudiciously boiling down a work into the good or bad category, we have a pretty heated conversation going on about whether or not a single work is misogynist or racist, or whether it is, you know, exploiting certain tropes that, you know, are themselves harmful or pernicious when perpetrated across the culture at large. This is not unethical. This is a particular set of experiences that many readers and many audiences do not have being used to explain to those audiences that, hey, there's something wrong here, but you don't notice because you've been too familiar with it for too long. Tropes like the noble savage, the way that like Native Americans are often portrayed as being spiritual or wise, that's harmful. The exotification of certain uh, races of women, especially Asian women or women from Turkey or the Middle East, that's harmful. And you can tell because the statistics seem to indicate that the, those kinds of women tend to be raped and sexually assaulted more than white women or other women outside of those 
exotified races. It's dangerous, in short. And we as audiences have a huge responsibility here. We are not sort of bystanders in this whole ethical discussion about reading and literature. We are an important component of this discussion. And yeah, we need to definitely charge the critics with a lot of these charges, as Lewis very much does. But we also recognize, need to recognize that those critics, in many cases, especially the critics trying to represent marginalized groups, are in essence doing the same thing that artists are supposed to be doing by Lewis's lights. Lewis, at the end of the day, tends to agree with my kind of broad strokes appreciation of Tolstoy when he says that, at the end of the day, literature, art, all of this is supposed to be about getting us into a mind, getting us into somebody else's perspective, being able to bridge the sort of isolated monadism um, of our own regular existence and allowing us to gain a little bit pers of perspective on ourselves, to see ourselves as others see us, to sort of transcend the natural loneliness that being a human being in a human mind kind of obligates us to. If a critic is working on a piece of art and saying this art is problematic because it excludes certain perspectives, certain attitudes, the correct response to this isn't let's defend this person because of all the other good things that they do. The correct response is to see this work of criticism as being an addendum to that work, to being an opportunity to see from that person's, from that set of experiences perspective rather than shutting them out. On the one hand, I suspect we are getting into political correctness territory, which is itself kind of dangerous and not exactly where I intended to go. On the other hand, we are definitely, as audiences, obligated to see art according to this kind of bigger, broader standard in some sense. We should be asking questions about the way that art presents certain groups of people or certain kinds of people or certain kinds of experiences or certain cultures or whatever. As audiences, we need to demand that from our authors because the alternative, especially in our super commercialized artistic world, will be to keep getting spoon-fed the same crap that keeps us limited from others rather than exploring their perspectives. If there is a difference between the unliterary and the literary, if there is a difference between those who are in fact exploring literature with an eye towards expanding their experience, their mind, their perspective, versus the experience of those who just want to use literature to confirm their own biases, that's the difference. That's the key distinction. That's the good-bad sheep and goats distinction that I think Lewis is looking for here. There are a lot of ways to appreciate good literature. And a lot of people are going to appreciate that good literature in ways that you yourself won't. Like I said, from my own perspective, I don't give a crap about lore, but I always like talking to my friends who are interested in lore because it gives me an insight into what I'm missing in a lot of these works. And it turns me on to literature that I wouldn't experiment with otherwise. Um, it gives me an opportunity to see more of the world, in short. But on the other hand, if a work of literature or a work of art is 
just reinforcing what is already there, just telling you the same story you've heard a thousand times, making you feel better about it without actually questioning or challenging or opening minds, well, what's the value of that then? What good does that in fact do? Lewis, on the one hand, isn't terribly moral in his examination of his experiment and criticism. And honestly, I almost cut him from the reading list. Like, if I were in fact teaching this as a class and I had to absolutely get this down to 16 weeks, he would probably be one of the first I remove. If it weren't for the fact that it turned out that he very conveniently worked as like the third unit in the whole uh, like work author audience uh, cycle. Um, he isn't terribly moral, he isn't charging either artists or authors with morality. But one of the things that I do find interesting is that he does charge critics with it. He does demand a higher level of examination and appreciation from critics. And while most of that sort of demand is really nothing more than, hey, stop ragging on you know great works of literature. Instead, we should learn to appreciate every work of literature for what it offers and not be deaf to anyone's appreciation of any single work. We should be open to what it has to say and we should go into every book expecting it to be good until we've proven otherwise. I totally appreciate that and I admire that and he can stay in this course just for that reason alone. But he is very indifferent to that moral obligation that I've been kind of keen to talk about in a lot of our discussions thus far. He's not interested in what does an audience have to do to read properly? What questions should an audience be asking of a work of literature? And what questions should we be asking of a work of literature? This is complicated. And on the one hand, I don't want it to be complicated like we don't have the equipment to talk about it intelligently because again like lewis isn't really interested in talking about that and it's sort of secondary to his purposes but at the same time again this is hot button stuff and as much as you know in our last discussion i talked about how controversial a lot of the discussion of you know how do we deal with a bad artist who produces good art is you know has become in our day and age as much as there's all the twitter canceling and you know like talks about jk rowling and fights over works of literature something that lewis kind of neatly sidesteps here by saying hey just appreciate it for what it does you know under that philosophy it would be appropriate of me to say hey if somebody likes hogwarts legacy we have to entertain the possibility that it's a good work of art though i would then add the addendum but we don't have to buy it because we don't have to support J.K. Rowling. Um, there is a difference there, but that doesn't change the fact that we are in a moral position. That our discussion of art and literature has gone way beyond whatever Lewis could have imagined in the 1960s. Lewis is talking about an art and literature world that is defined predominantly by students and professors. People who have been studying this stuff forever, and people who want to study this stuff forever, as well as the common run of people who are just disengaged from this process altogether. Today, today there are no lines. Which may be part of the reason why I observe so many differences, uh, more than Lewis does in his distinction between the literary and the unliterary. Perhaps there really weren't that many fine distinctions once upon a time, because 
there weren't that many people just caught up in the tide of media appreciation and literature and movies and so on and so forth. Maybe literature, the way that Lewis talks about it here, has been relegated to the same position that Lewis gave to poetry, where it has become so exclusive and so limited and so kind of specialized that only a handful of people are really engaged in it. But I don't believe that for a second. There are too many people still reading. There are too many people still getting excited about books. Um, like, I know plenty of people who just love fantasy and science fiction and will only ever read that, and yet I would be very hard-pressed to call them unliterary by any extent of the imagination. And for that matter, like, all of my nieces and nephews are being brought up on, you know, Percy Jackson and uh, various other novels for young adults, and I couldn't be more excited about it. Like, this is normal. Most of the students who come through my classroom are at least familiar with these books, even if they don't terribly like reading. But at the same time, I am less interested in whether or not they are reading, qua reading, and I am way more interested in, in the question, are they examining and criticizing not just books, but movies, video games, and indeed everything that comes across their plate. I imagine you could be a literary TikTok viewer. I've never seen it done because I'm way too old and out of touch with this world, but I nonetheless allow for that possibility and refuse to, like, reject it until I have proof otherwise. This is something that Lewis probably didn't have to deal with, but this is our reality. We are all artists. We are all critics. We are all audience members. We are all simultaneously and convolutedly caught up in all of these projects and businesses this is the life we lead. Not everybody necessarily lives here, but a lot of us do, and for those of us who do, we are engaged in all of these processes, wearing all of these hats. Which means that line between artist and audience is way blur blurrier than it used to be, as we talked about last time. But it also means that we as audience members, because we are seeking out and finding platforms, need to take those platforms seriously we need to recognize that being a good audience member is a moral obligation and that we need to listen not just to the artist and give them the benefit of the doubt on all fronts but also to listen to everyone else who is listening to that artist and hear what they have to say to some degree this is a different world than lewis had when he said that he could do without the evaluative of the evaluative critics for a day or however many however long it might be. Now, the likes of criticism has changed. There is an information being passed from hand to hand that Lewis lacked in his day. The experiences that would have been considered universal and that were common to literature, to media in all of its forms, have gradually faded away. And now we are caught up in questions about colonialism and imperialism. We are caught up in cultural appropriation discussions and questions about racism and misogyny and gender exploitation. We need to be attentive to that. If we are going to be publishing our gut reactions of a particular movie or a particular world or artistic work, be it, you know, a book or whatever, we are setting ourselves up to engage with communities that see things different from ourselves. And if our reaction to that is defensiveness, 
we're doing ourselves and the work a disservice. We need to be open. That doesn't necessarily mean we have to read every single comment, especially all the bad faith ones in the YouTube comments trying to, you know, insult us or, like, make us seem like terrible people. But we do need to recognize that our experience is limited. We need to be eager to put our ourselves in other shoes and to appreciate other ways of looking at the world. We need to try, at the very least. Because that's what this art is supposed to be for. If not, we're just doing navel-gazing, and that's to nobody's advantage at all. So with that in mind, let's talk a little bit about the different kinds of misinterpretation that you can run into in on an average day-to-day. And on the one hand, you got to start with the, that bad faith critic that I talked about. It is clearly the case that there are plenty of people who are engaging with literature in this day and age who have no business doing so. Like, even in Lewis's day, he acknowledges that this is the case, that there are people who don't know a thing about literature who seem to be writing extensively about literature and to be making their entire careers on the back of other writers, other artists. These career critics who seem to just be engaged in this perpetual war of, like, promoting and demoting various artworks and, and sort of, like, generating buzz for themselves. But today, that looks a lot different. Today, the bad faith critic has a political agenda that is undoubtedly insidious. The trouble is, both sides accuse the other of being engaged in that kind of bad faith criticism. The left consistently accuses many critics on the right of denouncing works of art because of tokenism, despite the fact that what they are actually denouncing is any representation or diversity at all. And the right frequently denounces the left on the grounds that they are virtue signaling or engaged in some sort of perfunctory social justice to try and, you know, get clicks and get approval, even though that doesn't seem to bear out in experience at all. There are plenty of people who are just going to have an opinion because having a particularly inflammatory opinion can actually get you a lot of money, prestige, and press. That hasn't changed since Lewis's day. Again, he acknowledges that's one of the problems he's trying to correct here. If we get rid of the critics who make their careers off of trashing great works of literature and making a stir about it while they do, if we can get rid of them, then we will all be able to appreciate these works a lot better than we can now. The thronings and dethronings that are happening on a monthly basis need to stop. Here, it's even more obvious. Um, if you are, in fact, just making talk in order to get views and to see people or to see your numbers rise as you like get progressively more and more absurdly worked up over a particular work of literature or art that's a bad sign and you are in very immoral territory um which is not to say that there aren't legitimate critiques that need to be handed out again there are people and perspectives that need to be represented that are frequently underrepresented. There is room for sure for close, careful critique, but it is quiet, careful critique. It is emotionally laden insofar as it is unavoidable and not emotionally laden insofar as it makes people more excited to watch your videos. 
as much as it is fun to watch some critic eviscerate some terrible movie or to absolutely like shred some author who is you know ignorantly or foolishly stomping all over minorities or something honestly it's not great of the critic to present it in that way as much as there are plenty of critics claiming that, hey, the world is going to end, society as we know it is doomed, our culture has turned into a politically correct quagmire, as much as it might be fun to listen to that crap, at the end of the day, it's not doing anyone a service. Maybe, yes, there is grounds for this, but if there are grounds for this, it's a conversation that needs to be had soberly and quietly, not angrily and in order to attract as many eyeballs as possible the line there between indoctrination and criticism is very very fine and it has been used that way by unscrupulous groups who are again very interested in the bad faith criticism now on the other side of the ticket the left sort of you know questioning and challenging a work of literature because it isn't pc enough the the virtue signaling side of this I tend to think, again, there are two sides to this. Yes, it does happen. I will admit that. Um, I don't see it terribly often on the internet, but I definitely have had some fairly convoluted and dishonest conversations with people who don't exactly understand why a thing is bad until they really dig into it more than they have when they make their original response. Heck, I'm probably guilty of that on some levels. What I tend to value, though, and what I tend to see accused of virtue signaling more often than not, is people from these other perspectives making legitimate critique and getting called out for it when it is totally inappropriate. So if, in fact, a female video game critic like Anita Sarkeesian says, hey, there are some problems in the way, way women are portrayed in video games, She's right to make that call. Even if she is being alarmist, even if she is being, you know, exaggerated or virtue signaling, even if she is doing it to get clicks in some respect, she is representing a population that has been underserved, and it's in all likelihood that reason that she's getting so many clicks in the first place. She is not the villain here. She is doing good criticism in a way that many of her detractors simply aren't. And I'm not just talking about the ones who are making death threats against Anita Sarkeesian, though they should probably be the first to be mentioned. Yes, different perspectives, different outlooks are valuable, and we need, we, you know, in this case I'm speaking as a white dude here, we need to recognize that it is incredibly precious when we are given these insights. Anita Sarkeesian is in no, under no obligation to give us her perspective, and we are definitely wrong if we're going out of our way to demand it. We should see this as an act of generosity, as a gentle correction, as an effort to help us understand literature and other perspectives better. Again, the wiser move on Sarkeesian's part would probably be to keep her head down and say nothing, even if that ultimately just means the problem is going to get worse. She would be wise to do that. It would be prudent to do that. We are lucky that she dared to do otherwise. And the same is true for anyone, be it a black critic who weighs in on racial issues, or a Middle Eastern critic like Sedanta Adlaka, who is speaking to political interests or niceties in contemporary film. We are damn lucky to have all of these different perspectives available at the touch of a button. 
and anyone who is lambasting these people, calling them out and criticizing them because they are artificially making their reviews, should be drawn and quartered. Those are the people ruining the internet, in short. And there isn't two sides to this discussion, by my reckoning. We are damn lucky to have these perspectives, and we should absolutely be looking at them more closely, and seeking them out if we can't find them. But letting alone the bad faith critic, because that one is pretty straight up obvious, liars and hypocrites need not apply, let's talk about the advantages, the uses of anger. Because this is a tricky subject. Like, this is very complicated. I just emphasized pretty, pretty directly that we should be avoiding criticism and avoiding perspectives that are rooted solely in emotion that are driven by outrage, that are sort of encouraging outrage in some respect. But at the same time, we need to recognize that for many, especially of these marginalized groups of these, you know, content creators, critics, artists in their own right, who are sort of coming to these works and questioning and challenging the assumptions that, again, predominantly white men have about these works, anger is often appropriate. And I imagine it is taking a great deal of self-control to be anything but angry in a lot of these discussions. Like, Anita Sarkeesian is a saint for repeatedly showing up on, on her uh, YouTube videos and not, like, calling people a bunch of giant bigoted assholes, but instead proceeding as though everything is business as usual in the academic world of film study, or rather video game study, um, that's impressive. Anger is warranted at how frequently these women are being portrayed as objects or, you know, prizes or any number of horrible things across all of these media. Anger is frequently warranted. Now, in Lewis's day, this is kind of not a thing. Because, again, none of these challenges have been made quite so directly. I imagine Lewis wasn't interacting with a whole lot of you know, predominantly black critics or, like, calling out various racist qualities of various great works of English literature, though God knows it might have been warranted. Likewise, as much as Rabelais is kind of cited here as being one of those great works whose merits should, you know, be recognized regardless of its demerits, when you start attacking it on the level of misogyny for the way that it portrays women, perhaps there is a greater, you know, worth to what is being judged and asked here. Um, likewise, um, Lewis seems to consider Conrad to be kind of the... How do I put this? Um... At one point, Lewis mentions that, like, you can describe Conrad and two other writers as being writers of sea stories and lumping them all in together. But two of them are very much just popular sea writers, like, you know, kind of what Horatio Hornblower would eventually become, though that is probably even higher quality than what we're talking about here, where Conrad is, supposedly, a literary writer with greater merit. Like, Lewis just kind of makes that assumption, doesn't bother to interrogate that assumption. Never mind the fact that many of Conrad's books are notoriously racist, and one of them I can't even say the title because it would be ridiculously offensive. Um, Conrad's a complicated issue, to say the least, and yeah, we should definitely be having a conversation about it, but when Chinua Achebe calls him out and is legitimately angry about how Conrad is portrayed, 
that's probably less to do with Conrad, the artist, and more to do with us. Our sort of blithe acceptance of Conrad as though, yes, of course, Conrad is literary, Conrad has keen psychology, Conrad sees into our minds, and apparently are tacitly agreeing that yes, black people are lazy or stupid or savage or whatever it is that Conrad happens to be saying about them in whatever work we're looking at. Achebe isn't mad necessarily because a racist writer was racist. That's pretty normal and probably pretty expected. What makes him mad at the core of his essay is why has he been taken to be this foundational writer? Why are we having every high school student in the country read this crap? Isn't that dangerous? And it's true, it is dangerous. It is dangerous when Disney like portrays fascism as attractive. It is dangerous when racism is sort of passed across the screen without comment. It is dangerous when women are, are portrayed in, as objects or as the object of rape casually in something like Game of Thrones without comment or description. It probably does contribute to sexual or racial violence. It probably does continue to contribute to the sort of dominant perspective of the inferiority of groups outside of white dudes. It's dangerous. And when it is positively identified the way that Achebe does with Conrad, we should be rolling it back and asking questions and reevaluating the value of these works. That isn't to sort of undermine what Lewis has to say about finding the worth of a thing. Achebe himself admits, Conrad is a heck of a writer. He's great at plotting. He tells a very compelling story. He fills it with very vivid imagery. But it doesn't change the fact that that does not necessarily, like, pass muster. You know, that does not excuse the horrible way that he portrays black people. Anger is, to some degree, warranted. And while we are probably more inclined to accept less angry and more emotionless attitudes about the works of art that we appreciate and admire, especially if we are being challenged on that front, it would be warranted to say, is the anger justified? Can we, by reading Achebe's articles or watching Sarkeesian's videos, recognize why people are upset about this? You know it frequently communicates that feeling and again that same artistic sense. In some sense what is going on on the internet now is less a matter of criticism, the audience responding to the artist, and more a matter of the artists duking it out with each other. We should probably see a lot of this criticism as art in its own right. And we should be careful to distinguish between the I am angry because I want clicks and the I am angry because this really, like, attacks me personally, threatens me as a human being, threatens to undermine my agency and personhood. Those are legitimate questions that we should be asking. And they aren't the same question. They aren't the same thing. Which brings us to what I like to call intrinsic versus extrinsic evaluation and criticism. This is something that I've kind of explored quite a bit, especially in my Decolonizing My Library series, as sort of ill-fated as it turned out to be. Um, this is how I usually characterize this distinction between, on the one hand, what Lewis is prescribing here by saying, hey, 
we need to see what this author has to offer us and appreciate what other people appreciate about this author versus the extrinsic, the judgments that the author isn't necessarily engaged in and therefore require an outside perspective to appreciate or to recognize. So an intrinsic judgment of Conrad's Heart of Darkness might very well include it is well written, it is well plotted, it is compellingly emotional, it you know, digs deep into the human psyche and, for that matter, condemns imperialism in uh, among the British in Africa at, at the turn of the century. But it does not comment terribly well on issues of race that other people are quick to point out in this work. Conrad arguably wasn't interested in those questions or was blind to these criticisms or didn't realize what he was saying when he did. In order to get at that kind of judgment, in order to appreciate those dimensions of his work, we need to see criti the criticism from the external, the extrinsic, something that the author didn't bring to our attention, but rather is either subconsciously or unconsciously included in the work and needs to be teased out by someone particularly attuned to recognizing these issues. Some of those extrinsic critiques are highlighting ignorance the way that, you know, again, I suspect, like, Echebe is highlighting Conrad's racism. Some of it is highlighting hypocrisy, like when Sidanta Laka points out how the MCU is making deals with the military in order to include military hardware, and as a consequence, it is to their advantage in many of these movies to, you know, make a pro-military argument in the course of these works. That's something that is frequently being sort of downplayed in the work. It's not a question the artists want you to be asking, and for all and for all that needs to be asked all the more. Intrinsic judgment is appreciating what the author is trying to say. And like Lewis, I agree. We need to come to a work of literature ready to hear what the author is getting ready to say. Um, we have to assume we are reading a good book before we can determine that we aren't. Um, and this is how I usually work in my reading as well. Like, I am not shy to putting a book down because I find it offensive or upsetting or boring or bad. Um, I have put down many a book as a consequence of those judgments. But I usually give the author the benefit of the doubt for as long as I can afford to. It is pretty rare. Um, like, last year, for example, I wrote in one of my views from my reading list that I tried to read the, the Books of Jacob um, the, by the Nobel-winning prize, or Nobel-winning, Nobel Nobel-prize-winning author. Um, and I wanted to like it. I really did. I thought it was cool. It was a big, thick, awesome book about, you know, history and Eastern Europe and stuff that I'm really interested in. But at the end of the day it wasn't interested in the same stuff that I was interested in, and the writer was more interested in sort of the, like, sexual conquests of the protagonist, rather than the complicated religious dynamics that surrounded him. I think I got something like 250 or 300 pages through that 800-page novel before I finally called it quits. I wanted it to be good. I kept waiting for it to turn around. I wanted it to appeal to me on a level more than just, hey, look, it's sexy times in history and, you know, people are still kind of monsters even when you present them as heroes. It just, 
never happened, and I gave up. But that's what it takes in my case. I have plowed through many a book that I didn't think especially good, and ultimately discovered that there was something hiding under there that I wasn't appreciating. So when I read, for example, Octavia Butler's Lil or Lilith's Brood series, what was Once Upon a Time, the Xenogenesis trilogy, I didn't quite get at what she was doing in the first book. But halfway through the second, it clicked that this was a science fiction trilogy essentially offering a very alternative utopia of how human life could look like if we just got over ourselves and got over our own like ridiculous sense of racial purity. Which means a lot coming from a black woman writer in 1990 and is absolutely fascinating when viewed through that lens and sort of perceived through that light. It is a shockingly different take on the utopian novel by that reckoning, and I wrote extensively about that as well. That's what proper intrinsic reading is supposed to look like, and like I said, you need to do that first. You need to get what the author is telling you in order to properly wrestle with the critiques that you're getting from the outside. So when, in fact, you read Conrad's Heart of Darkness and are blown away by it and think it's an awesome book like I did the first time I read it, that's great and all, but you need to do more than that in order to do proper critical work, in order to do proper critical judgment. The responsibility of the audience is to do both. To appreciate what the author has to say and not downplay the virtues of this thing that you are reading, but also not to let them excuse the failings of the work. Proper audience appreciation should be, in theory, objective, not invested, not personal. Like, personal, yes, if you've been attacked personally, but not somehow defending or standing up for a work because somehow it is tied to your success as a critic, as an artist in your own right. Which is increasingly difficult to see. Like, I don't know why there are all of these people who, like, spam media outlets if they give some really popular game like Grand Theft Auto V less than a 5 out of 5 or a 10 out of 10. It is absolutely baffling to me. I do understand why promoting a work that you really like is something that a person is inclined to do. God knows I've written my fair share about Lobotomy Corporation and Library of Ruina at this point. Please, somebody play this game so I can talk about it with you. Um, but at the same time, I wouldn't ever say, you know, like if somebody said, actually I tried it and I didn't like it because of XYZ, my response would be, you were a fool! No. My response would be, oh, yeah, I can see that. Or alternatively, it didn't bother me when I was playing it for whatever reason. Presumably our subjective experience is different. That kind of distance is necessary to being a good audience member. The kind of distance necessary to both appreciate what an author does well and to also call out an author who is doing something wrong. Both are necessary. Both can be good in the right circumstances. And that's usually, in fact, a pretty good litmus test for when you are dealing with a bad faith critic versus a good faith critic. If, in fact, somebody is calling out a work of literature for inappropriately representing their experience or, you know, being degrading to a certain minority or, like, being personally offensive to them because of the way that certain people or characters were portrayed, usually that's going to come tempered with praise. 
they did X well, but I couldn't shake the fact that I felt personally attacked. You know, and this is not just minorities or marginalized groups either. Like, this is how I feel when I sit around watching Gilmore Girls with my wife. Like, in Gilmore Girls, the relationship between Rory and Lorelai is definitely the clear focus here, but any time that, like, two guys are in the same room together, they're either right about to fight over one of the girls, or they are engaged in some sort of, like, really stupid golf game or, or, or something that is just incredibly asinine, that is effectively, at the end of the day, a power play where one is trying to manipulate or show off to the other. And on some level, I find that personally offensive. Because not all men act that way all the time. Like, it's not like every time I walk into a room with another guy, we immediately break into a fist fight because, you know, we are both in love with the same girl or something. We, we have other parts to our lives. I joke with her that, the, that Gilmore Girls occasionally fails the reverse Bechdel test in that respect. And on the one hand, that's silly. And on the other hand, yeah, it's true. But most importantly, who cares? Because they're, this is not a trope. This is not a widespread problem. This is honestly kind of fascinating. Like, if you can name three more works of literature or media that have a similar problem with the portrayal of men, good luck to you. Like, it's so rare, it's so uncommon that it isn't endemic. It isn't a serious problem. That's fine. I can totally feel put in my place by Gilmore Girls from time to time and not feel terribly threatened as a human being. Whereas, when you are relentlessly subjected to that same kind of criticism, it becomes taxing. You change your identity as a consequence. It is something that affects you on some deep and meaningful level. But because you are exposed to that same problem over and over again in a way that I simply am not, then you learn to appreciate, hey, this is a good movie with bad representation, or this is a bad movie with bad representation. That's fair. That's balanced. That's proper extrinsic criticism. That's what it's supposed to look like. And not just total ignorance, total, you know, disregard for the merits that a piece of art might offer for what truth it may have to have to present. We need to do Lewis's job first and then make our way to the extrinsic judgment, the recognition of its problems from the outsider's perspective. But I should also say that this does not mean that we'd all need to watch everything. This is not an excuse to go harass people for not seeing something. Um, this is not an excuse to come harass me because I didn't play Hogwarts Legacy before, you know, railing on it in my last discussion. No, there are reasons why you don't engage with this stuff. But it's probably good not to criticize it, except insofar as it is purely extrinsic or monetary or whatever, um, if you are not going to bother to get through the whole thing. I may rag on James Joyce's Ulysses every now and again, but I always temper it with the acknowledgement that I still haven't finished the damn book, uh, much as I temper my criticism of the books of Jacob in the same way. So this is what I want to emphasize. This is sort of the discussion that I have been having with myself for the last like week and a half or so as I've been kicking around this book and thinking about all of these issues of how to be a good audience member and how to properly appreciate and properly read a work of literature. 
On the one hand, I am definitely 100% behind a lot of what Lewis has to say here. I may disagree with his literary versus unliterary distinction and think that it warrants a lot more explanation and nuance and critique just because the world of readers has grown so much more populated and so much more nuanced since Lewis wrote. But at the end of the day, I am 100% behind his argument that we should approach every work of literature as though it's going to be a good work until proven otherwise. I absolutely approve of us appreciating each work for what it offers. I mean, heck, that's why I do the reading I do. Virtually every book that shows up on my list of books that I want to read has been recommended to me by someone that I trust or by enough people that I'm not sure about that it warrants my attention. That's how I come to a lot of this stuff. It's just how literature is supposed to work, I suppose, especially when you, like me, are so interested in the conversation as much as the work of literature itself. So, yeah, let's assume these works are good. Let's assume that there is value or merit in all of this stuff until somebody has absolutely definitively shown otherwise. Admittedly, we don't have the time to read or listen or watch or play all of the things that we're going to have access to. God knows my video game to playlist is over a hundred games long, and those are all games I own, by the way. My reading list is probably twice that large, and I don't even know how many movies are out there that I haven't seen, because at least on that one, I'm not being regularly exposed to it because I'm not necessarily plugged into that world. But that's a good thing, I guess. Having that many things that I'm excited about, having that many books that I'm eager to read, being excited to investigate and find some truth, some meaning, some new goodness about a work, that's what this is all about. That's why I get into this. That's why I keep reading, keep trying to discover stuff. I'm excited for it. I'm eager. And as much as there is a lot of bad writing out there, a lot of bad literature, a lot of bad stereotypes and bad tropes and even bad criticism, that's never been terribly perturbing to me. Because at the end of the day, I want to see what you can do. I want to see the good that each of these works has to offer. And it is very, very rare that I find something that I can't put up with, that I just find utterly bankrupt or not worth my effort. It's pretty rare that I put down a book with the expectation that maybe the next one will be better. Most of the time, I find something, some redeeming value, even if it is problematic in other ways. I will absolutely champion a lot of broken works because they do something fascinating or exciting or different or unique. To me, that's the only standard you need to meet, necessarily. I may have my own judgments and peccadillos and arguments with people who, you know, prioritize sexuality over all the other aspects of their work, or who take a certain sort of perverse glee in making fun of their own characters, looking at you, Victor, or Mr. Nabokov. Those books I will frequently put down because I no longer, like, trust the writer at all. I no longer recognize their values as being at all informative or interesting. But... It doesn't change the fact that I can still say some of them were really interesting, conceptually or, you know, ideologically or even in just the regular prose that they're presenting. If it made it to print, chances are there's something good about it. And I 
try to find that good thing in everything I read. And I suspect I'm not alone in this. I know this is a philosophy that, you know, most of my friends are well familiar with, either because they know that I am doing it or because they practice it themselves. This is a pretty good rule of thumb. It doesn't excuse, but it does allow, and it does enrich. And I think that's very much what Lewis is getting at here in his experiment in criticism. The books that are worthwhile, those literary works, are, at the end of the day, in some way, enriching. Even if they're badly written, like Agatha Christie's, and then there were none, I will undoubtedly make it to the end, because there's something in there that I really like. Namely, the plotting and the structure of this gradual, systematic murder house. Um, which, now I'm asking questions like, oh, well, does that mean that the slasher movie isn't directly based on this? But that's another conversation for another day. For now, let us move forward. I suspect that next week I'm going to be taking the week off. Uh, spring break is coming up for me, but it isn't quite hit yet, um, which means that I should be able to do more reading and more research once spring break comes around, but I'm also going to be kind of pushing to the to the end here. Um, so in all likelihood, I'm not going to start in on Sartre's What is Literature until the week after next. Sorry, folks, um, but yeah, that's probably the, the shape of things. Uh, but that is our next project. We are kind of shifting gears here now that we've done our sort of introductory discussion with Tolkien and Tolstoy, now that we've kind of looked at all three of the major participants here and with Gasset, Maritain, and now Lewis, it's time to actually take on some of these big conglomerated literary works, um, namely Sartre, uh, Rand, Gardner, and Booth. Um, it's time, now that we've got the basics down, to see what each of these individual authors actually has to say and how they sort of address this and change the nature of our discussion, prob probably in relation to the world of literature that they are, in fact, dealing with. Um, so our next discussion is going to be starts, what is literature? We're going to start with the first three chapters. So what is literature? What is writing? What is Why write? And for whom does one write? Um, I don't have a supplementary reading figured out for Sartre yet, because this is actually the first time I'm reading what is literature, so who knows how this will turn out. Um, plus, from what skimming I've done, it seems that Sartre is working with a much more abstract sense of literature and art, which probably makes sense, given he is our next major philosopher on the list. Um, but you can probably expect our usual French suspects to show up. Um, I know I did catch a couple references to Rambeau. I'd be shocked if he doesn't mention Mallarmé at some point. I mean, just as a side note, I'm so glad that Lewis didn't bring up Mallarmé. Like, this is, this is the first reading we've had yet that hasn't talked about Mallarmé in some sense. And I'm just, oh my gosh, so relieved. Uh, I feel so out of, out of depth every time that somebody talks about Mallarmé. And I'm like, I don't get it! Why is he so awesome? Um, maybe one day I'll learn. Maybe one day I'll be able to find the magic thing that attracts me to Mallarmé. But so far, it has not hit yet. Um, but tirelessly, I endure. What is literature for next time? I look forward to talking about it with you soon. Hey, thanks for listening, and I hope you enjoyed that last discussion. Uh, I should stress, this is hardly the end of the Professor Kozlowski online presence. If you want to read some of my essays or look into some of the other work that I'm doing in and around the internet, or perhaps take one of my classes more formally, uh, 
please check me out at professorkoslowski.wordpress.com. That's very much the nexus point for all the stuff that I am doing online, and I usually keep it pretty well updated. Um, I should also stress we've got a lot of ambitious projects coming forward this year. Um, but a lot of those projects are kind of piecemeal and, and stalled as long as I'm not making a whole lot of money on this venture. Um, so the two ways that you can definitely help to make Professor Kozlowski Lectures a success are like, share, and subscribe. Get the word out. Let people know that I'm talking about something that you're interested in or that there's something interesting going on with the work that I'm doing. And if you can, absolutely, please consider contributing to to my Patreon at patreon.com slash Professor Kozlowski. Um, a little bit of money goes a long way there, and it helps you to vote on the new topics that we're going to come up with or even uh, suggest new topics, especially for one-off summer lectures. So I hope to hear from you soon. I hope that you, you know, get that word out, and I'll be back soon with a new lecture.